0: Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Leonard Skinnerd are insane. Their singer Ronnie Van Zant was a violent bully from the mean streets of Jacksonville, Florida. He tried to maim one of his guitar player's hands with a broken bottle. He knocked out his piano player's front teeth not once, but twice. He held a gun to his drummer's head during rehearsal. And when his bandmates followed suit with their own debauched antics, Ronnie turned their drug and alcohol flirtations with death to hit songs. Great songs. Some of the best and most enduring American rock and roll songs of all time. Unlike that music I played for you at the top of the show. That wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called You Can Call Me Betty, MK1. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to You Let Up My Life by Debbie Boone. And why would I play you that specific slice of pining-by-the-window cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on October 20th, 1977. And that was the day that Leonard Skinner's plane dropped from the sky and crashed into a Mississippi swamp, killing six passengers, including Ronnie Van Zandt. On this episode, busted teeth, broken bottles, pining by the window, cheese, and Leonard Skinner. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgrace Land. Skinner's drummer, Artemis Pyle, was covered in blood. He dragged his battered body through the swamp. His ribs felt like they were shattered. Just like that Convair CV240 was shattered into God knows how many pieces when it dropped out of the sky and crash landed here. Wherever here was, South Carolina, Mississippi, Louisiana, the plane wasn't in the air too long before it all went to shit. Now, that two-bit death trap was smoldering on the swamp floor. The members of Leonard Skynyrd and their entourage were dying or already dead. When Pyle managed to pull himself out of the destruction, he saw the pilot and the co-pilot still strapped into their cockpit seats, hanging upside down from a tree. You didn't have to look twice to know they were no longer of this earth. But what about everybody else? Pyle had no idea. Ronnie Van Zant, Leonard Skynyrd's lead singer and resident ass kicker, hated flying. How's that for a bad woman? There were others too. The Convair was 30 years old. It looked like something the fucking Clampets would tool around in. Aerosmith straight up refused when they were offered to fly in it. And just yesterday, flying from Miami to Greenville, South Carolina, a 10-foot fireball shot out of the engine at 12,000 feet in the air. Burned for a minute, easy. They all saw it. And that was textbook fucking biblical guidance. You get through this flight, you touch down, you kiss the ground, you thank the Lord, and you do not get back on that plane. And why was Leonard Skinnerd in this position in the first place? They were huge, like blow the Rolling Stones off the stage at Nebworth. Huge, about to headline Madison Square Garden. Huge, and as such, they should enjoy the luxuries that a huge band can afford, like their manager. And that fucker was sitting in first class right now. On some commercial flight. While well, his boys sweated it out in this hunk of junk. What's their name? Everybody knew their name. This wasn't the early 70s anymore. It was October 20th, 1977. Just three days earlier, Leonard Skinnerd released their fourth studio album, Street Survivors. The critics even liked it. The fans liked it too. They were a big deal. The pilots, on the other hand, had acted like yesterday's 10-foot fireball wasn't a big deal. Ronnie followed suit. That was probably just his confrontational machismo trumping his aviation phobia. That dude was born fists first, that's what they said at least. He fought anyone and anything, even his bandmates. Ronnie Van Zant wasn't gonna let some puddle jumper scare the bejesus out of him. Besides, the plan was to have the plane serviced when they reached their next destination, Baton Rouge. But they never made it to Baton Rouge. Up in the air, the right engine sputtered, and then it just died. The pilots were surprised to notice that they were dangerously low on gas since they had just fueled up in Greenville. They decided to find the closest airport for an emergency landing. They began a slow descent. Landing with one working engine probably would have worked if that is the left engine didn't give out too, which it did. The pilot walked back to the cabin and made the announcement. We're out of gas. Put your heads between your legs and buckle up tight. Artemis Pyle replayed that moment through his head as he continued to drag his ass through the swamp. The sun had gone down. The sound of cicadas had gone down with it. And in their place, all a pile could hear it was the rush of wind after the conveyor's second engine failed. Then the sound of the wind was replaced by the violent sound of trees hitting the undercarriage as the plane sank lowered to the ground. First one tree, then another, and another, and suddenly 10, 15, 20 treetops, all smacking the plane at once, and then ripping it apart like beasts disemboweling their prey. Pyle shook the sounds from his head and moved through the swamp. He hadn't always been a drummer. He was ex-Marine. Once a leatherneck, always a leatherneck. Marines didn't give up, and they didn't leave anyone behind. The swamp, on the other hand, had different ideas. The swamp was a sunken tableau of mud and vines and grass and twigs, the dead limbs of mighty oak trees abandoned and forgotten. The low croak of bullfrogs sang their ancient forest ballad. Pyle looked up. Helicopters. That was nice and all, but he didn't have time to wait for the search party to land. He crossed over a creek. Snakes hissed in the muck. At long last, he saw a barbed wire fence up in the distance. And just beyond it, a herd of cattle. Civilization. Pyle hoped to God that someone was home. He slid under the fence and approached the farmhouse. The cows standing in the field gave him blank stares. Not so much for the farmer who had emerged from his homestead with a shotgun in his hand. He looked at Pyle like he was a blood-soaked, long-haired, hippie swamp thing. He saw the copters circling above. He knew there was a prison camp nearby. He put two and two together. He cocked his firearm, raised it, and then he pulled the trigger. It was supposed to be a warning shot, but Artemis Pyle felt the buckshot tear into his shoulder. That sealed it. Pyle knew he wasn't in South Carolina or Mississippi or Louisiana. He didn't need no bullfrog croak its primordial folktale to tell him where he was. He caught a whiff first of gunpowder and then of hot metal charring his flesh. Can you smell that smell? Destruction. Death. Hell. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland, all access by visiting DisgracelandPod.com slash membership. In 1972, five years before their blossoming superstardom was cut short by a fatal plane crash, Leonard Skynyrd were big fish in a little pond. The pond was Jacksonville, Florida, a town that wasn't big enough for two shit-hot local bands. Lucky for Skinner, Dwayne and Greg had taken the almonds over to Macon. Skinner stuck around. They made an impression. Whether they were calling themselves Conqueror Worm or the Noble Five, the 1% or Sons of Satan, the name they eventually settled on endeared them to a particular subset of Jacksonville denizens. Those long-haired hippie types whose very appearance made the old school rednecks nervous. Leonard Skinner was a real person a high school gym teacher at, yes, Robert E. Lee High School. He got soon-to-be Skynyrd guitarist Gary Rosington suspended because Gary's hair touched his shirt collar and fell within two fingers of his eyebrows, thus violating the high-and-tight dress code. But it wasn't just their long hair and fuck-the-man sense of humor that got Skynyrd notice. They could fucking play. They played so damn well that Alan Walden, formerly of Capricorn Records, picked them over the 186 other bands he auditioned in the course of one year and signed them to a management contract. They played so well that Al Cooper, Bob Dylan's rock and roll zealig, signed them to his brand new MCA records imprint called Sounds of the South after witnessing them kill at a small club. But if they ever wanted to make it outside the greater Jacksonville area, they needed more original songs. So they rented a one room shack some 30 miles outside of town to write and rehearse. No AC. And if the heat didn't kill you, then maybe the gators and cotton balls would. They called it Hell House. It wasn't just the heat that made the cabin feel like purgatory. Ronnie Van Zant was a take-no-shit taskmaster. Practice was 9 a.m. to dusk every day. No entourage, no girls. You played the song and then he played it again. You fucked up the intro? Stop. Do it again. You played the solo different than last time? Stop. Do it again. Leon Wilkerson's bass had to be married to Bob Burns' kick drum, and the guitar onslaught of Gary Rossington, Alan Collins, and Ed King, the triple threat they dubbed the Guitar Army, that had to be assassin-level precise. Leave the shroom shit to the almonds. Jamming wasn't Skinner's cross to bear. Skinner was tight. Skinner Live sounded just like Skinnerd on record. Even their show-stopping ballad turned Barnburn or Freebird, the stairway to heaven of the south. That song was mathematically precise every time they played it could cut glass with that too, And that was all because Ronnie Van Zant held Skinner's feet to the Hell House fire. Now after hours, after hours was when Ronnie switched gears and lived what he called the rock gut life. The rock gut life was bottomless bottles of scotch, broken noses, and busted fists. It was when the booze did the talking for you. It did the fighting too. Ronnie Van Zant wasn't just a street survivor from a poor neighborhood. He was a street fighter. There didn't have to be a reason why he fought. Maybe a guy looked at him the wrong way on the sidewalk. Maybe a guy didn't look at him at all. Didn't fucking matter. You wanted to exit the room with all your teeth, right? So first you had to figure out how you were gonna get past Ronnie Van Zant. Ronnie's own mother thought he was the meanest son of a bitch in town, but you know, moms are biased like that. And though Ronnie Van Zant may have been, as his Heroes of Rolling Stones sang about a street fighting man, he was not, to paraphrase a Skinner song, a simple kind of man. Ronnie was complicated. Ronnie could write a song like The Needle and the Spoon, a cautionary tale about heroin, while still dabbling in stuff that was way harder than is Regal. Ronnie could write a song like Sweet Home Alabama, a Southern man's proud battle cry, shit-talking Canadian liberals be damned, and do it while not only claiming that the divisive Confederate flag hoisted at Skinner shows in the mid-'70s was not his idea, but merely a marketing gimmick by MCA Records, but also by loving the hell out of a certain Canadian liberal, Mr. Neil Young, the one who had dissed Southern men not once but twice in his own songs. Ronnie did, as it turns out, need Mr. Young around, but I digress, and more on that age-old beef later. Ronnie Van Zandt could even champion gun control in a song like Saturday Night Special, while simultaneously putting the fear of God into his bandmates with a loaded pistol. Bob Burns, Leonard Skinner's original drummer, was burning up inside Hell House. Ronnie was cracking the whip again. Bob just wanted to be done. Ronnie didn't care what Bob did or didn't want. Leonard Skinner weren't gonna grab that big brass ring by quitting when they were tired. As bassist Leon Wilkerson once said, Ronnie ran Skinnerd like Stalin ran Russia. The Saturday Night Special came out fast, barrel blue and cold. Ronnie stuck it against Bob's temple. Play the motherfucking song, Ronnie said or I'm gonna blow your brains all over this room. Bob and the rest of the band feared Ronnie even more than they loved and respected him. They did what Ronnie said. That was the only path. It was a path of destruction. At first, Skinner destroyed the bands they opened up for. They could fuck up the competition just by showing up. Ask the band that was playing at Greenfield Stables when Skinner's van arrived on site. Fans screamed and cheered so loudly for Skinner that they drowned out the music being played on stage. Do you know who that band was? Neither do I. No one remembers them. But everyone remembered Leonard Skynyard, for better or for worse. 1973, Daly City, California. Keith Moon was drunk. Or maybe it was the pills, the ones meant to knock out a horse or put an elephant on its ass. Either way, Keith was sprawled out backstage at the Cal Palace. He could barely sit up straight, let alone play and the other members of The Who quickly came to a solution. The drummer for the opening band could fill in. And that was easier said than done. Playing or partying, Leonard Skiddard went toe to toe. There were also quick studies. Touring with The Who would prove to be their big break. A serious promotion from playing to audience of a 1,000 on a good night to 19,000 every night. But it also proved to be the moment where Ronnie Van Zant's rock gut life bled over into band life. Replaying or fighting? It was hard to tell the difference while you were busy setting a new pace. The Who plays loud, you play louder. Keith Moon gets drunk, you get drunker. Which explains why Skinner's drummer, Bob Burns, did not fill in for Mooney that evening because just like his British counterpart, Bob Burns was plastered. Instead, some 19-year-old got the dream gig of a lifetime when he was hauled from the crowd to sit in with one of the biggest bands on the planet. Skinner could relate to the luck of the 19-year-old kid Thanks to the connections of their producer, Al Cooper, they were opening for The Who. And thanks to The Who, they now had the attention of audiences beyond Jacksonville. This coming on the heels of a hit debut album pronounced Leonard Skinner, which peaked at number 27 on the Billboard album chart. It felt like the beginning of a new chapter. For Bob Burns, however, it was the beginning of the end. The next year, 1974, On tour in England, Bob Burns saw the devil. It stared at him from behind the eyes of a hotel owner's cat. The thing was possessed, and it had to die. Bob grabbed the cat, made his way to the top floor of the hotel, tossed it out a window. They say a cat always lands on its feet. This is not true. This cat died on impact. The devil, on the other hand, wouldn't be killed off so easily. Pretty soon he was back, this time in the eyes of Skinner's road manager. Bob knew it. He looked into those eyes and trembled. Once again, he knew what he had to do. He had to cast out Satan with extreme prejudice and Ronnie Van Zant caliber violence. But although Bob Burns tanked up on codeine-laced whiskey and chased the guy down the street with a pickaxe, he never caught up with him. Life on the road, on the other hand, life with Ronnie, the rock gut life, that caught up with Bob real fucking quick. And so Bob Burns spiraled out of control and right out of Leonard Skinnerd, Fast. Not Ronnie Van Sant. Ronnie was going to take his time, go down slow at first, and then pick up speed, like a Convair CV240 with two busted engines dropping from the sky. And he was going to take the whole band down with him. We'll be right back after this. Word, word, word. Years before it became drunken shorthand for hecklers at concerts, Freebird was a cathartic finale at Leonard Skinner's live shows. It had everything. The sensitive part that you swayed to while holding your lighter in the air, and the Double Time Guitar Army climax that left your face melted. And though it ran nine minutes long, Freebird was a staple of 1970s rock radio, thanks to the AOR, or album-oriented rock radio format where DJs on the FM dial were keen to play any and all album tracks they deemed worthy. MCA, however, wouldn't release Freebird as a single. And why would they? The song single-handedly made Skynyrd's debut album a massive commercial success. It wasn't until November of 1974, more than a year after the album was released, that Freebird was finally released as a single. By that time, Skynyrd's sophomore album, Second Helping, was already on shelves, and one of that album's singles was making ways for entirely different reasons. Ronnie Van Zant and Skinner guitarist Ed King and Gary Rosington wrote Sweet Home Alabama in response to the song Southern Man in Alabama, both by Neil Young, both unflinching portraits of deep-seated racism in the Deep South. Ronnie was proud of his Southern heritage. He wasn't a dumb redneck. He didn't think it was fair for Neil to lump all Southerners together as bigots, So he called out Neil Young by name in what would become Skinner's highest-charting single. But it was the song's other call-out that attracted more controversy. George Wallace, the Alabama governor who championed a Jim Crow South in the middle of the civil rights movement, the guy known for lines like segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, he got his own moment in Sweet Home Alabama. But was it Skinner saluting or lampooning the infamous politician? Ronnie gave an interview in the mid 70s where he called the song a joke, but then went on to call Wallace a gentleman with a lot of nerve and balls. Ed King was less coy when it came to the band's politics. Ronnie was a big fan of George Wallace, he later said. He totally supported him. We all did. We respected the way Wallace stood up for the South. Anybody who tells you differently is lying. Ronnie's supposed beef with Neil Young wasn't a lie, exactly. It was an opportunity to rally Skinner's bass. It was good for business. But off the record, even after the Sweet Home Alabama dust-up, Ronnie regularly wore Neil Young t-shirts in concert. He even wore one on the cover of the Street Survivors album. And Neil passed on his home demos to Skinner. He wanted them to record his song Powderfinger on an upcoming record. They never got around to it which meant the existing narrative the one that lived and breathed on the airwaves carried on their fictionalized rift for decades still does today but this is the real story Neil Young loved Ronnie Van Zant and Ronnie Van Zant loved Neil Young Ed King on the other hand didn't feel Ronnie Van Zant's love all Ed King felt was Ronnie Van Zant's wrath Ronnie bitched and moaned about Ed's playing over and over Ed was garage rock royalty, former member of the Strawberry Alarm Clock, co-writer of the number one hit Incense and Peppermints. That was a nugget if he dug it, but Ed never got that respect. There was a pecking order in Skinner. Ronnie Van Zandt was on top. Everyone else was down below. The abuse was verbal. The abuse was physical. Ed King couldn't take it. He didn't see the devil like Bob Burns did, but he saw the writing on the wall all the same. In 1975, a year in which Ronnie was arrested no less than five times for being shit-faced. Skinner embarked on a 90-day 61-show tour to support their third album, Nothing Fancy. They called it the Torture Tour. The tour was aptly named. Ronnie berated Ed backstage after a show in Pittsburgh. Ed bounced back to his hotel room where he packed his shit and left in the middle of the night. He never came back. He didn't know it then, but Ed King got out while the getting was good. Not so much for Billy Powell, the band's piano player. Billy made the unfortunate decision of arguing with Skinner's road manager in a hallway directly outside Ronnie's hotel room. Ronnie opened the door and told him to cut the shit. Billy told Ronnie to mind his own fucking business. Ronnie punched Billy square in the mouth. Billy stumbled back. He tasted blood as it rushed from his lip and then he felt his two front teeth bouncing around in his mouth. Just a week later at the tour's closing date in Jacksonville, it was Ronnie's turn to taste blood. He started coughing just a few songs into the set and tasted warm iron in his mouth. All that singing from the throat and not from the gut. They cut the show short. The audience rioted. They tossed bottles. They fucked up Skinner's gear. Police drew their revolvers. Kids got their arms chewed up by canines. 16 people were arrested. Ronnie's street fighting rock gut life manifested itself by osmosis. Backstage, Ronnie needed something for the riot in his throat. Something to make the pain go away. Pills, Coke, booze. Something stronger. Something. Anything. The peppermint schnapps tasted good on ice. It wasn't like bourbon or scotch. It went down real easy. The boys and Leonard Skinner had ordered another round, and then another. Conversation turned. What the hell even was schnapps? And how did you say that word? Schnapps. Schnapps schnopes schnapps schnapps right schnapps Ronnie Van Zant wasn't amused the more he drank the more he wasn't the lead singer of one of the biggest bands in the world anymore he was the neighborhood bully you pronounce it schnapps you dumb fuck like shut up and stop smooched together fucking idiot saying words all wrong and shit that's Ronnie by the way not me so the band got back to their hotel room and they were pissed off and Ronnie was still pissed too so he did what he always did when he was pissed he started swinging his fists around the guys told him to cool it, and that just made him angrier. Ronnie grabbed a bottle and smashed it. Then he waved around a jagged piece of glass clutched in his fist. Someone was going to get fucked up tonight. Gary Rosington would do. I'm going to cut your hands, Ronnie said to Gary. You're not going to play guitar again. Ronnie slashed, the glass cut open Gary's hand. Ronnie slashed again, sliced Gary's other hand. Again and again and again. Slash, slice, slash, slice. Until Gary's hands were chopped to hell, and the blood was everywhere. Skinner's road manager took care of the whole thing like he always did. He had a briefcase stocked with $250,000 in cash just for shit like this. Bail money, hush money, blood and glass on hotel room carpet floor money. But although money mended Gary's hands, throwing money at a problem didn't always fix it. And the problems kept coming. Not just Ronnie's problems. The crew got into it with some asshole who wouldn't stop running his mouth at the bar one night. Words turned to elbows in the face, which then turned into Skinner getting tossed out on the street. That incident was immortalized in the Leonard Skinner song What's Your Name, the lead off track to the album Street Survivors, released in October of 1977. That album also featured the song That Smell, partly inspired by Gary, fucked up on quaaludes and booze when he drove his brand new Ford Torino at high speed through a telephone pole, then a parked car, an oak tree, and finally into a house. No, wait, it wasn't Gary who hit the parked car. That was another Skinner guitarist, Alan Collins, when he got into it in his own automobile wreck. Ronnie used Gary and Alan's car accidents as inspiration for the cautionary tale that was that smell. You know, do as us uh, Skinner boys say, not as we do. Still. Can you imagine the guy who gets so fucked up that he carves up your hands with a broken bottle, hands that you use to make your living in his band? Or he knocks out your teeth in a hotel hallway, which, for the record, was not the last time Ronnie punched out the piano player's teeth. That's the same guy who comes to your hospital room, gives you a guilt trip for crashing your car, and then writes a fucking song about it. I got a word for a guy like that. Asshole. Leonard Skinner had a song for everything, though it seemed: bar fights, car crashes, guns, drugs. They even wrote their own eulogy, they just didn't know it yet. Artemis Pyle's shoulder burned from where the buckshot had hit him. He held up his hands in the air as the farmer reloaded. Don't shoot, he yelled. And then he desperately told the farmer who he was and what had happened. By the time rescue crews arrived on the evening of October 20th, 1977, at the site of Leonard Skinner's plane crash near Gillsburg, Mississippi, a stretch of tree-lined swamp called Slaughterhouse Road, the bone pickers were already picking up on that smell. Not just the smell of death, but of morbid opportunity. They picked up wallets, purses, cash, jewelry, all of it stolen while 20 survivors lay there bleeding. Like Gary Rosington, one leg and both arms broken, his stomach and liver punctured. And Billy Powell, whose facial lacerations were so severe, his nose was hanging off his face. And the band's security chief, Gene Odom, blind in one eye with a broken neck, whose final words to the pilots before the crash were, I hope you two sons of bitches live through this so I can kill you both. Gene Odom didn't get to carry out his threat. The pilot and co-pilot were both dead, hanging from their cockpit seat upside down in a tree. Steve Gaines, the guitarist who had replaced Ed King just the year before, and his sister Casey, one of Skinner's new backup singers, were also among the dead, as was Skinner's tour manager and Ronnie Van Zandt, who was not in his seat at the time of the crash, but was passed out on the cabin floor, either from a stiff drink, a sedative, or both. He died from blunt force trauma to his forehead, most likely from a tree limb that thrust through a window during that harrowing descent into the Mississippi tree line. Other details of the crash were as ambiguous as Ronnie's lyrics. The National Travel Safety Bureau's official report ruled the crash was caused by, quote, fuel exhaustion, and total loss of power from both engines due to crew inattention to fuel supply," In other words, the plane burned through gas at an abnormally high rate and the pilots failed to notice it until it was too late. Still, to some, it sure was convenient that Peter Rudge, Skinner's manager since Alan Walden left in 1974, chose to ride first class on a commercial plane instead of in the leased Corvair with the rest of the boys. Others grasped for clues on the cover of Street Survivors, Skinner's final album with Ronnie Van Zandt in their original lineup, released just days before the crash. The cover showed the band standing on a street surrounded by flames, as if they were making a defiant stand in hell itself. The photograph was said to be prophetic, that the members touched by flames in the photo were the ones to perish in the crash. Closer inspection of the cover showed that actually all members of the band were touched by the flames in one way or another. Nevertheless, MCA pulled the original cover and replaced it with a similar shot of the band standing in utter darkness, illuminated only by a spotlight. And in that darkness, they remained. Leonard Skinner disbanded, but the crash wasn't the end of their suffering. The swamp, the darkness, the devil, hell, none of that was through with them yet. In the aftermath of the tragedy, one roadie took his own life, another was institutionalized. Guitarist Alan Collins lost his wife in childbirth and then, years later, lost his girlfriend when he crashed his Ford Thunderbird into a ditch. The accident left Alan paralyzed from the chest down. Surviving band members argued and sued each other, largely over Leonard Skynyrd's legacy. Many of them had it out for their manager, Peter Rudge, the one who leased the plane but refused to ride in it. As a result, Rudge nearly killed himself with cocaine and alcohol. And after a 10-year hiatus, Leonard Skinnerd returned, but they were never the same. Leonard Skinnerd 2.0 has been around for decades now, far longer than the original lineup ever was. Ronnie's younger brother Johnny is the band's lead vocalist, not to be confused with the third Van Smp brother Donnie, former lead singer for 38 Special. Gary Rossington remains the band's only original member. If you're seeing Leonard Skinnerd these days, you're watching a glorified tribute band. All the things that made Leonard Skinner, for better or worse, the mystery, the danger, the violence, all of that either got left at the bottom of a Mississippi swamp or was put six feet in a hole. June 29th, 2000, Jacksonville Memory Garden Cemetery, 3 a.m. Clay County Sheriff's deputies responding to a disturbance were shocked at what they found. Someone had robbed the graves of Steve Gaines and Ronnie Van Sant. Near the smashed marble mausoleums, a plastic bag containing Steve Gaines's ashes was on the ground. Next to it was Ronnie's casket, which had been wrestled from its tomb. The vandals either weren't able to pry open the casket or they got spooked and ran off before they could do further damage. The cops didn't have any leads. For more than 22 years, the final resting place of Steve Gaines and Ronnie Van Zant had been a mecca for Skynyrd fans to pay their respects. Not just to the memory of those two men, to the memory of Leonard Skinner, which for all intents and purposes died in that Mississippi swamp back in 1977. And for more than 22 years, visitors treated the grounds with respect, but not on this night. The families were horrified. They moved the remains of Steve Gaines and Ronnie Van Zandt to an undisclosed private location where they could carry out eternity in peace. And why would someone do such a thing? Dig up a grave? Did they do it for no other reason than to just do it, just like Ronnie Van Zant didn't need a reason to fight, or was it something else? Were the vandals hoping to confirm one final long-standing rumor? Was Ronnie Van Zant really buried wearing his Neil Young t-shirt? Can't you smell that smell? Destruction. Death. Disgrace. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit DisgracelandPod.com membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod, and on YouTube at YouTube.com slash at Rock and He's a bad, bad man.